think if you can create that, if you can create that sense of mission, sense of building something big, that's a fantastic thing you can do as a leader. The diversity is really a treasure in a company that provides a lot of value. We believe the interaction and the culture you create by being together and spending time together is priceless. Hi, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the podcast in partnership with Megaverse. More about them later. Now, if you're not subscribing to the show, what is it going to take for me to get you to subscribe to the show? Cost you nothing. You can unsubscribe at any time. But if you do subscribe, we get an opportunity to get more eyeballs on this content, which means we can bring you better and better guests. And surely, if you enjoy this content, that's what you want too. So please, if you can subscribe, it would mean the world to me and all of the team here at Unscripted. Today's guest, Tommaso Rodriguez, the CEO of Talabat, the food delivery platform here in the UAE with over 5,000 employees, a young tech guy who's the head of this fast-growing organization, talks about the challenges of leadership, the challenges of keeping employees engaged, and how they go on to be the biggest and the best at what they do. He really cares for his employees, and that's why I had to have him on the show. So let's cue the music and get Tommaso on the show right now. Megaverse, the digital frontier of tomorrow. Megaverse stands at the cutting edge intersection of technology and imagination. It's a virtual realm where the limitless expanse of the digital universe unfolds, offering users unparalleled experiences and interactions. With its advanced metaverse platform, users can craft unique avatars, forge connections, and even establish their own digital estates. It's more than just virtual reality. Megaverse is an expansive digital civilization teeming with opportunities for both individuals and brands. From immersive concerts to revolutionary retail experiences, Megaverse is redefining the way we engage with the digital world. As we stand on the brink of a new era where the lines between our physical reality and the digital realm blur, Megaverse is poised to lead the charge in this brave new world. Dive in and discover a universe without bounds. This really is the future. Tommaso, thank you so much for coming to join us today on the podcast. Spencer, thank you for inviting me. It's interesting, you know, I look at this this brand of Talabat and uh, I've spoken to you before, so other uh, our avid listeners would have heard that conversation before. But something that really, really triggered me into wanting to speak to you again was something that you quite famously did a few months back now when you decided to get on a motorbike. Yes. And get out there and, and, and experience. And I, and I thought experience it from a company point of view, but experience what it's like to drive a motorbike on the roads of Dubai. Absolutely. <laughs> Maybe let's say I did it for deliveries, to the deliveries, right? <laughs> not, not just riding <laughs> on the roads. <laughs> yeah. Now, obviously, Dubai is a, an unusual place compared to Europe. The roads are a little bit more dangerous. And so the, the, the job of being a rider here is definitely much, much scarier than it would be back home in the UK or in Europe, I would think. I don't know. Uh, have you ever ridden in uh, Milan? Ah, <laughs> that's a good yeah. <laughs> I mean, when I was living in Italy, I was uh, moving around with motorbike. And uh, yeah, it was not easy. I lived in Milan, but I never had a motorbike. But yeah, that's probably... And Rome as well, that kind of place is crazy too. Yeah, okay, fair point. <laughs> so tell me, why did you do it? Look, I think, uh, you know, the most important thing 
for me was to learn, to learn things you cannot learn, you know, from dashboards and numbers and, you know, speaking to your team, etc. And uh, it was really understanding what happens on the ground. And uh, there were a lot of learnings, actually. Um, and like the big, like first things first, like, for example, when I started the shift, I, I logged into the shift, put the phone on the holder of the bike and it died immediately. <laughs> and uh, it was like, why? Like, because the sun was eating, was eating very, very hard, right? And uh, so, like, out of that, we started installing these windshields with, uh, you know, UV protection so that the phones don't die anymore, right? Uh, because if you think about it, it's very unsafe if, if the rider cannot put the phone there. They mm. need to keep it in their pocket. Then, you know, if they have to look at the road, where to go. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's very important. Um, and these kind of things you cannot learn uh, sitting behind the desk. Great valuable lessons for you being literally at the coalface with the people that are out there delivering the food day after day. You took that as an experience, and we see sometimes company bosses go and try something out so that mm -hmm. they can go and learn stuff. Mm -hmm. Did that prompt you to want to spend more time understanding that and make that a, a, a frequent thing that you did? Yes, absolutely. So now I'm doing it every quarter. So I did it three times already. Uh, along with that, also I'm doing picking experiences so go into supermarket as a, as a picker and you know, and, and try the the thing and uh, recently i also went uh, in a restaurant to you know serve the orders to the to the riders to see how the process works on that side of things fascinating yeah. did you enjoy it i i loved it i loved it we're going to publish it very soon oh, uh, really? but uh, yeah it was very fun. It's interesting when you think about that, you know, you're getting out there and, and you, you, you're, you're seeing all of these different jobs and how they take place. One, one thing I always find fascinating about Dubai on a motorbike is where do you park motorbikes? That's a, that's a fantastic question. There's a lot of unwritten rules <laughs> and, uh, and the riders know all of them. Like, for example, the buildings, you never know where, if you have to go in the basement parking, if you have to park outside or whatever, if you have to enter from a side door, the main entrance, and all this information is not out there for the riders and they need to learn like every single building of the of the city, right? That, that's why our riders are kind of specialized in zones, right? So that they have that, that experience. But um, I mean, for a first day rider, it's very hard to learn all those things. Incredible. Okay, how many employees have you got in the business? So we have uh, office emplo uh, employees around 5,000, and we have around 80,000 riders across the region. 80? 80,000, yeah. 80,000 riders? Yes. Now, those 80,000 riders, do they work for an external logistics company? Do they work directly for you? How does that work? So they exactly work for uh, external logistics companies. There are many external logistics companies we uh, work with uh, that uh, you know ensure all the... Uh, you know, medical benefits and, uh, you know, f flights, uh, accommodation and, and provide the motorbikes to the rider, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and we, uh, you know, contract with them. Now, when we look at a company like Talabat, around the world, maybe that name isn't known, but definitely here in the region, it's, it is widely known. But it's quite a competitive space. It is. We think about the other companies that you're up there against with, which we won't mention today. <laughs> <laughs> Boo! <laughs> <laughs> But the, the, this evolution of people, you know, I, I grew up in a world where you you might call the Chinese takeaway and mm. then you'd go and pick it up later on. Nobody would be delivering it unless you ordered a taxi from the minicab office to yes. do it because you really didn't want to leave your home. Yes. Uh, that, that was how takeaways worked for me when I was younger. Yes. But 
But that was kind of like the Friday night treat. Yes. It was true, the pizza. Absolutely. It was the Chinese it, or, or whatever it may be. The Saturday night hangover food, <laughs> whatever it might be. Absolutely. N- nowadays, people are, are using these types of services for their everyday food. Yes. Seven days a week. Yes. to provide what they need in, in, in not a, you know, a stodgy Indian food or a stodgy Chinese food, but in a healthy food yes. type of way as well. Yes. It's interesting how that's changed, isn't it? How we look at shopping for food differently. I, 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 absolutely. Uh, and I think maybe I should not say this, but I have stories of a lot of people in, in, in Tala, but like my CFO has four kids. And he tells me that the, they order seven, eight times a day. This whole family order seven, eight times a day on Talabat, right? Each person orders something different, and they also don't sit together, right? It's uh, everybody is in the room, etc. Yeah. I think the habits, especially among younger generations, are changing a lot, right? Um, if you look at uh, maybe Europe, uh, my mom and my dad didn't order one single food delivery order throughout the whole pandemic, <laughs> which, which is crazy, right? Like it's, a, it's a, I think Middle East is a very different place. People love convenience. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that's what basically we provide, like, uh, like very, very good convenience. I look at these different delivery. I mean, I, I have food delivered every day, but I have a meal plan. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's, 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 I get, okay, my food comes from a company called Nourishing. They have mm-hmm. a, someone that at 4 a.m. in the morning drops it off at my front door, yeah. and, and then they pick, pick the bag up the next day and bring the next one. So in many respects, doing something very similar, just yeah. with a very healthy focus. But when we look at, it's interesting, when we look at different countries, in Italy, for example, it's not often you see people eating food that isn't Italian. Mm. It's true. Okay. That's very true. That's so very you, true. You, you, if you go to, I don't know, you, anyway, you go to Lake Garda, it, it, you don't find, you know, Chinese restaurants, Indian restaurants. It's, it's pretty you, much Italian. You do, but, you know, most people eat, eat Italian. That's true. That's true. Like people here are more adventurous and maybe because you also have people from all over the world, right? Before Dubai was living in Asia, Asia is a bit the same. Actually, in Asia, even before food delivery, no one ever eats at home, like because you have so much, so so many cheap options. Just you walk downstairs and there are food courts and everything, right? Um, but the eating at home, I think, is uh, more of a European habit. And um, the rest of the world is kind of fading away. I heard legends, I don't know if it's true or not, of like houses in Hong Kong being built without kitchens. <laughs> nowadays so uh but but yeah it seems like the world is going into that direction a bit can you imagine that good for you i guess you've got your brother again who wants a kitchen exactly why do you need a kitchen imagine that if i found out that you partnered with emar talabat and emar to build this new tower kitchen free kitchen free that's it that's it could go there though (laughs) yeah yeah, it could (laughs) wow that's fascinating to think about Talk, talk to me about being a young guy running such a big business, all right? Because you're not your typical suit-wearing, middle-aged, old-fashioned, been-around-the-block type of guy, you know? You're a young, fun, dynamic type of individual running a very large organization that's only going from strength to strength. What kind of challenges do you face being that kind of person in that type of role? And how fun is it being a little bit different, maybe? <laughs> well, first of all, thank you for the young. I'm not that young at the end of, at the other day. And actually, I was looking, I did a couple of podcasts recently. I was looking like, I look so old now, right? So that's why I'm wearing a T-shirt today <laughs> instead of, of a shirt or whatever. But, um, but I've never seen you in a shirt. 
No. Do you wear them? Very, very rarely. Okay. Very late. Only for official meetings or, or stuff like that. But I prefer to be in a, in a, in a T-shirt. Um, and I think we have a very... Uh, I think at the end of the day, it's not much about the age. Uh, uh, but I think it's about, you know, the culture and, you know, uh, what, what do you believe is the right culture for your company, right? Um, and I think uh, Talabat, the most important thing for us is uh, um, we say you can be you, right? So we... Uh, you can own your own quirks and and everything, right? We don't judge anyone, and we uh, we leave, we l- we let you be, right? Uh, and uh, no matter your age, no matter your sex, your preferences, your religion, your country of origin, like it's, uh, uh, you know, Talabat, you can be you. That's that's how we we think about it. Interesting. Do you remember a company called Zappos? Yes, of course. Okay, so Tony Shea started Zappos yeah. over in the, Las Vegas. Yes. And I went to their offices in Vegas to see how their business operated before they sold it to Amazon. And everybody had to work in customer services for the first three yes. months. It yes. doesn't matter what your job title was, you worked in customer services to understand the customer first. But then they allowed everyone to design their desk and their work area the way they wanted to. Uh, and what they wanted to do is make everything convenient for the employees. So they brought the dry cleaners to them, the car servicing to them, all of that kind of stuff. Take, take all of these hassles away from mm. the employees so they can focus on being effective at what they do. Mm. And I, I, at first when I was watching it, was thinking... My brain was a bit scattered. It was a bit kind of like crazy at first because you had, you know, John had his desk there and it, you know, covered in football memorabilia, and then yes. Joan had hers covered in floral arrangements and all this kind of different <laughs> stuff. And they had a bar, and I'm like, how does anyone get anything done in here? Yeah. But but clearly it worked because it became a billion dollar business very quickly. Yeah. When I see that kind of stuff, to me, that's like a guy saying, I'm going to try something different and see how it works and see how my colleagues enjoy this type of experience mm-hmm. and if it does work great and if it doesn't work i won't do it yeah now he was a bit extreme because he lived in a, an airstream caravan yeah. they collected llamas and stuff like yeah. that before his passing when you look at business now and you compare it to how it used to be mm. it's so different yes I, th- I think i think it's a it's a it's a different word and look i come from a tech background like before talabat i always worked in tech companies um I was working Grab in Asia. I worked for Uber since for a long time, like from the very beginnings of Uber. And um, you know, I think when I joined Talabat, this was not kind of a tech company. Uh, the headquarter was uh, was still in Kuwait uh, mm-hmm. in 2018, and um, the tech team was uh, uh, sitting in a basement in a building, and it was a 30 people team, and it was called the IT team. Right, uh, and this was a purely commercial company, sales-driven. Uh, people had to badge in and badge out, uh, and so it's like you cannot attract the best people with this kind of of culture and, and setup, right? So um, I think we we changed all of that. Uh, people sometimes criticize that we have a very beautiful office and headquarter with amenities, etc. But I think that's very important because when you try to attract really the best people, they want these kind of things. They want their their office environment to feel like a home environment, like to feel that, you know, they'd like to stay there and to spend time there. Um, and that's why, for example, we are probably one of the very few companies that have a five days a week uh, working from office policy. We don't allow working from home. Right. Ah. Yeah, we don't. I know it's very controversial. Uh, I think it's brilliant. But but I think our response is more we want to make the office very nice and like a place where you want to be. 
because we believe that you know the interaction and the culture you create by being together and spending time together uh, is priceless. That's really interesting. So you've gone against the grain of that kind of evolution to the kind of four day week and the people working from home two days a week. I mean, I have in one of my businesses, it's like they, they, they work in the office three days a week, but I'm kind of old school and I'm like, no, everyone should be in together because I want that sense of camaraderie. I want that yeah. place of belonging. I want that environment where, and to me, there's value in seeing you at the coffee machine at 8.30 Absolutely. in the morning and talking about the football results. Yes, that to me, there's value in that. There's connection from that point of view as well. Absolutely, absolutely. And it, 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 you, you create those personal connections. And actually, you know, we measure, you know, happiness of people. We have this PECON score. I mm -hmm. probably probably you know about it. And and you know, we measure the engagement, right? And and you see that engagement goes up if people stay at the office, right? Uh, and like if everybody works from home, they never meet each other they don't feel really committed and engaged to, to the company somehow. It's a company like any other company at the end of the day, right? You cannot really build that a strong culture, I think. Um, and the other thing we notice, if you look at the Zoom data, because you know Zoom gives you data on meetings, et cetera, if people stay at the office, the number of meetings decrease. Because as you said, I meet my friend at the coffee machine, and yes, we talk about the football match, but maybe, hey, I have this issue with this thing, maybe, you know, what do you think? And, you know, that avoids a meeting that mm. otherwise I would have scheduled, right? Um, so I think there's a lot of benefits to that. That's really interesting. Talk to me about retaining staff and recruiting people here in the UAE. We statistically, one in four people leave their employer every year here from top down in terms of roles. It, it, it exists everywhere. Yeah. There's obviously a lot of growth taking place here at the moment. So attracting really good talent as a challenge for lots of businesses. How have you found it? Look, I, I didn't know the statistics. Uh, it's good that you mentioned because that makes me feel good about our numbers. Uh, our turnover is more around in the 10%, so, so it's, uh, it's uh, one every 10, basically. Uh, so, uh, look, we, at the beginning, I think we were hiring a lot of people from abroad, um, especially in the engineering and in the product uh, areas uh, today, I think there's a big pool already in the in the UAE and in Dubai, um, and it's becoming better and better. The quality of talent is increasing is increasing a lot. So um, I feel hiring is becoming easier, maybe these days, um, and uh, retention. Now that you tell me this number, I'm happy about it. <laughs> <laughs> Talk to me about leadership when we think about. Uh, your years, your younger years. Who, who is a really great leader that you worked for, and what was it that was great about him or her? Look, I learned a lot from my um, from all the CEOs of the companies I worked with. Even though in my first company, you know, I was not working directly with the with the CEO, but um, you know, not my. But Uber, let's say, when I was at Uber, I think uh, uh, Travis, who was the CEO and the founder back then. He was a very, very visionary person, right? It was, uh, um, it could really um, make you feel that you're building something special, something big, that you're changing the world. And I think when you have that kind of feeling, like you, there's nothing you can't do. I was finding myself working 2 a.m. at night and enjoying it and being happy about it because I was feeling I'm building something bigger than myself, bigger than anything I could achieve in life, right? So if, I think if you can create that, if you can create that sense of mission, the sense of uh, 
building something big, that's, uh, that's a fantastic thing you can do as a leader. There's, there's a word cult in, in the word culture. Yeah. And I've had guests on the podcast that have come from religious cults, like okay. extreme religious cults, who are fascinating to, to, to learn about how they got seduced by that cult. But yeah. if you look at Instagram, when they started, they described themselves as a cult mm -hmm. and other businesses as well where you get that startup company where you know the first 10 people are in, they create the culture of that business, and they're, they're all, like you said, working at two o'clock in the morning because they all believe in the mission and the vision, yeah. uh, and then they've all got purpose, and they're all heading in that direction. But the company kind of slowly gets bigger and bigger, and that, that cult aspect kind of dissipates a little yes. bit along the way. What do you feel about cults and everyone being part of that kind of stuff because me to me it's like a sense of belonging it's true um and i think it's uh, it's it's i mean i don't think companies should build cults uh, i mean I, I, you said I, I i usually say the same exact thing that you're saying like oh, we're, really? building, we're building a culture we're not building a cult right so i think that's uh, that's really spot on um i think it all boils down to what you're actually doing right if if there's substance in what you're doing, um, did you watch We Crash on the on the? Yeah, uh, of course, everybody watched that. But I think the idea is like if you are in that kind of culture of like fake it until you make it type of Silicon Valley thing, uh, I mean, then you have to build a culture around it, right? Because you don't have a product, you don't have a real substance, and you have to make people believe something that maybe is not there. So at some point, you you get so into it that you start believing your own lies right or, or something like that so uh, I, th I think that's that's the problem of many you know uh, tech companies or startup companies is when you know they don't have a real product market fit and uh, um, I mean they're buying top line because they have a lot of money from venture capitalists or whatever so they're kind of buying revenues and so the company is growing it seems to be growing and everybody's excited everybody's happy like and, and no one sees that it could at some point uh, stop growing but there's no substance. And then you have to create a reason for people to believe in it, right? Mm -hmm. And that's when you create, then it becomes a bit of a cult. That's a bit how I, how I see it. When you look at a HR or human capital department and then you compare that to the finance department, there's always tends to be an element of resistance. Mm -hmm. The HR department come up with great ideas about what they think could help improve engagement, can help improve performance. And the finance department are like, what are we spending money on here? Yeah. Okay, and resist a little bit. And to me, Maybe, maybe they, in lots of companies, they don't work hand in hand as much as they could. Because if you give a finance department an argument to spend, I don't know, a, a million dirhams, because it can prove that they're going to produce two million dirhams on the back of it, then the finance department is generally, and this is quite binary, generally quite happy. Yeah. Um, and the HR department or the human capital department don't always get that aspect right. Mm. Have you experienced that? Uh, I think maybe... Um, it's a bit of the opposite of our company. Mm -hmm. uh, like uh, it's it's uh, maybe it's a bit weird, but I think my CFO, I have a CFO that's like super super pro business, right? And uh, uh, he believes a lot into investing into people. And um, and whenever we are we have compensation discussions, I think like he's the one pushing for usually more than than whatever comes from as as average discussion from HR, uh, et cetera. Uh, so I think they work very well together because they both want to make life of our uh, people better. Um, 
I am more of, um, I like to make sure that the very good people are rewarded, right? I, th I think there's a, there's a component of like, you have to reward fairly people, but there's also a component that the ones who are really the stars of your team need to be exceptionally rewarded, right? Um, so I don't think every company should treat everybody the same. Um, I think if there are people that are pushing much harder and putting much more commitment and effort, they should be rewarded for that. It's interesting that you say that because if you take Jack Welch's book when he was the boss of um, GE uh, called Winning, he mm -hmm. wrote about how you break down that workforce into into three groups. Mm. The top 10% were one, sorry, the top 20% were one, the, the middle 60% were another, and the bottom 20% were another. And he said the top 20% get treated differently. Mm -hmm. They get treated, it's one-to-one -one relationships with the CEO and the chairman because they're the top performers in the business. Yes. The bottom 20% are probably the people that this is the wrong environment for them. Yeah. You know, they should be encouraged or helped to find work or a career doing something that would satisfy them more. Yep. And the middle 60% trying to work out, you train them and you work with them as a group, but you find the ones that potentially are going to be the stars of the future within mm -hmm. that group. And so they're either going to move up or they're going to move down. And yep. that's that's how he would identify it. And the brave thing is saying the bottom 20%, you know, should probably move on. And often in companies, we, we keep people, don't we? We keep people longer than maybe we should. That, yeah, it, to, to some extent is true, but we, 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 we really try to push that, right? And it doesn't mean that people have to get out. Uh, so, for example, out of uh, so one third of all the roles we have open at Talabat are filled with an internal position. So we have a lot of yeah. yeah so we have a lot of people that move around actually, uh, and I completely agree with you. Like most of the times, it's not you know a person that is not the right person, but it's just the right the fit, right? And it's about okay, you have to do what you love, what you like to do, and what your skill sets. Uh, you know, allow you to do, right? And, and and when you find that match, I think that's the perfect job somehow. Um, and I always tell everybody, like, if you're not happy uh, when you're coming to work every day, then you should change job. <laughs> I mean, it's, a, it's as simple as that, right? Um, so, so it could be within the company or outside the company. But if you don't have that feeling coming to office every day, then this is not the, the right fit for you. Lots of companies have spent time over the years looking at wellness and uh, and trying to understand that and come up with various wellness uh, initiatives that they've done, whether that be you know fitness challenges, food challenges, this kind of stuff along the way. And and, and there's evidence out there to say that these don't work very well. Um, a lot of the time, the problems are because some of the leadership isn't as good as it could be, mm -hmm. and people need to work for good leaders. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes people just don't know where they're going. Mm. You know, and if you know you sat down with people and said, "Right, what's your ambition? What is your goal? What are mm. you trying to achieve? What do, where do you want to be?" Yeah. And you could help them achieve what they wanted to. Then yep. the buy-in is much stronger from that employee. Yeah, you know, often you'll be I don't know wherever you may be talking to somebody. It's like you're you know I don't know you're the head of a department. Okay, so so, so what's the next step for you? Yeah. Mm. Until the old man retires, there's not there's not a next step. Well, when's the old man going to retire? Mm not 10, 15 years probably, yeah. is that I'm now limited. And so the enthusiasm and the passion kind of wanes yeah. from person, people, even even in senior roles. Yeah. Giving, giving employees the opportunity to feel like the company cares about their future and cares about helping them get to where they want to get, 
with both parties involved in mm. the efforts required. Yeah. Is that something that Talibat spend time looking at? Yeah, a lot, a lot. And uh, I mean, uh, where to start? So I think, you know, as I was telling you, a lot of the positions are filled internally and mm -hmm. we promote mobility a lot. And then what I always tend to say to my teams is like, you have to take your career by the horn, right? And the way I think I was most successful in my career in the past was to kind of get a bit out of the comfort zone and go where my company needed me the most, right? When I was at Uber, I was uh, in Europe. I was uh, in charge of Italy and Greece for the ride-sharing business. But then there was this uh, fire that was coming up. They wanted to launch this new business called Uber Eats. And there's, there was no one that would go to Asia and do it and whatever. And so this is what, was, what the company needed the most. And so I took the opportunity. I, did I want to go out all the way and move? Probably not, right? I think the same, we, and that was a lateral move. It was not a promotion. It was just, mm -hmm. okay, move same level, but go where I can make more impact for the company, right? Um, and I think that's a bit of the approach. We have positions. Everybody wants to work and live in Dubai. We have positions all over the region, like uh, whether it's Kuwait, Qatar, Oman, or uh, Jordan, or Egypt, and whatever. Um, I think, and, and, and usually uh, we, we have always open leadership positions in these countries, right? And I think getting a bit out of your comfort zone could also mean, okay, I move from Dubai to one of these places, right? Um, another thing we do is a yearly conference that we call the TLC, the Talabat Learning Conference. It's a one day where we block out everybody's calendar and we have special guests from outside that come and tell us about their business, how it's evolving in the future, all related to food and grocery tech, usually. Uh, but we try to kind of understand what's going on in the next three, four, four or five years. And I try to, you know, make everyone think how can they, you know, develop and uh, improve the way you're working to, to achieve those kind of futuristic goals and, and, and so on. And then we have another program that is called Elevate where we take the, uh, the leaders of the company that we believe have very high potential to become like uh, upper management or C-levels. Um, and uh, uh, we try to foster them uh, into, into, into that uh, by providing executive education, like from uh, business schools, uh, plus internal programs that we, that we developed for that. Uh, these are some examples. We have like a lot of other things that we that we're doing, but um, growth opportunities is the maybe one most important thing we focus on uh, at Talabat. It's common sense, isn't it? If you can take people from within the organization that already buy into the brand and are loyal to the brand and understand the culture yeah. and give them the tools they need so that they can progress yeah. up that company. Yeah. So that, that external and internal training, you're, you're essentially investing in those, those guys yourselves. Totally. Look, I was, I was doing this mental math the other day and I was like, okay, uh, MD, uh, managing director of a country, lasts on average maybe three years. Uh, or something like that, um, because it's a very tiring job. Like it, it takes a big toll on you. Like work very long hours, a lot of responsibility. And you know, there's there's people who like it, who love it. Like you know, partners are consulting firms that can do it for 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. Like here, also MDs they can do it for a long time. But you know, on average, uh, it lasts for like three years. Um, if you take someone external, maybe it takes six months to find someone. It takes six months to teach the job. And then maybe after one year, they start, you know, start getting it right. And then you only have one year and a half span 
of uh, of utility, right? So, so it's much better if you find someone internally and you can groom that person that knows the business, knows the ropes into developing into that position. Uh, the, the company will benefit from not having a whole of two years of absence of leadership in in that role, right? How do you cope with the different nationalities and cultures from that we have in our melting pot of being here in Dubai and finding the ways to get them all aligned to achieve the you know the greater good for the business you know you see many companies where they'll have Indians or Filipinos that are paid considerably less than somebody from the West in exactly the same role mm -hmm. you'll see um, uh, often uh, often you'll go to uh, I speak at lots of events or company events and, and I'll see you know there'll be the Indians sat here, there'll be the Filipinos all sat here, there'll be the Russians over here and the, and the Westerners over here. Kind of like everyone's segregated and separated. How do you manage that within your business? I have to say this doesn't happen uh, at Talabat. We have, uh, we have uh, 85 different nationalities in the, in the company and uh, pay is based entirely on on your job profile and grade in the company, etc. Not, we don't you know, pay by nationality, that, uh, that's for sure. Um, and, uh, you know, the way I think about it, and also when I think about my team, my direct reports, like they come, each, each one of them probably is different nationality from all over the world, from Asia, Europe, uh, uh, Middle East, etc. Um, look, if you hire people that are the same as you, it's very hard, it's very fast to hire because like you, you, you get connected immediately and, and uh, you know, oh, these guys think like me, like it must be good, right? Because I'm good, then he's good, right? So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so you, you hire very fast and stuff get done very quickly. And you're like, oh, shit, like it's, 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 it's happening, right? It's, uh, I just tell this guy to do something and it happens the, the next day, right? But then you can just get from here to here, right? And mm. uh, you cannot get here. Right, because you don't have that diversity of opinion that comes to the table. If you hire very different people than you, it will be a mess at the beginning. Everybody hating each other. Uh, people will not get along together. It will be hard to push any single initiative because everyone will have their opinion and their whatever. So, so you're like, why am I doing this? This is a big mess. It's never going to work. But after a while, if you manage to get that group working together, you know, you have like an endless flow of ideas and opportunities that you would never have had if you had hired only people like you, mm -hmm. right? And I think the diversity is really a treasure in a company that, that provides a lot of value. And do you find that, that leaders from lots of different backgrounds, if they're trained in the right way, are effective at leading anyone and everyone? Yeah, I would say we have we have leaders of any nationality in the in the company. It's today. interesting. Yeah. You know, I've been here for 19 years, and I remember years and years ago when I was first here, these two guys in dish dashes walked into my office, into reception, said, you need to spend 5,000 dirhams and advertise in the Chamber of Commerce book. You need to put a one-page ad in. I didn't know who they were, but I was, I'd only been here like three months, and I was like, oh, they're officials. And I, I was immediately in that moment, like, terrified. I'm like, okay, no problem at all. I mean, I'll, I'll pay for the advert. Yeah. Well, that happened the first time, and the second time, I'm like, mm. the third year that happened, I'm like, 
are you guys actually Emiratis and who are you representing <laughs> here? And they weren't. They were two Pakistani guys. I'm like, okay. Yeah. So I was I was almost like in fear uh, 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 of, of the uniform almost yes, yes, before. Yes, yes. This happens to me all the Did time. It? Like I have these guys calling me saying, oh, we have this event is sponsored by His Highness, the Shaykh, whatever, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but then, then if you dig, you you discover it's not true at all, right? But but yeah, it's, it happens. It happens. But then we then we then we see often that I remember I remember years and years ago. So two thousand and five, I got here. So two thousand and six, um, my company did a deal with Barclays Bank, and it was to provide uh, this was financial services, provide all of the life insurance because Barclays had just introduced mortgages. Mm-hmm. So Barclays British Bank, we were a British business. Guess what? Wonderful. Within twelve months, Barclays had become not British anymore. Okay, it had become Indian and Pakistani. And I was literally watching in front of my eyes the culture change, mm, 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 mm. okay? The, and, and it was a real experience for me, watching how people, mm, you know, mm, mm, behaved, mm. how they worked, their, their, their level of commitment to some things and lack of commitment to mm. others. And it was, it, was, it was a real kind of like experience mm. to the point where I wasn't smart enough back then to, or intelligent enough, whatever you want to call it, experienced enough to be able to make that work, mm-hmm. you know? And I just had to put my hands up in the end and say, Look, guys, this doesn't work. It doesn't yeah. work, it doesn't work for me. And the truth is it could have worked. I just didn't know how to do it. And I didn't have enough good leadership around me at that mm-hmm. time to help me learn and understand yeah. that. Yeah. You know, that, that cultural difference was really big. Yeah. Have you experienced stuff like that in your time? Uh, look, I think it happens when you have one group of very homogenous group of people, right? And, and I mean, this could happen with the Indians, could happen with the British, could happen with Italians, mm. with Italians even more probably. Definitely, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> and and uh, so, so I think it's just the point of, of when you can create a true company culture is when you have that diversity, right? Because it's not dominated by one, mm. um, you know, culture or another. And, and, and maybe it's true. So I was fortunate enough not to... Uh, experienced that because already when I joined Talabat it was quite uh, diverse um, so 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 I think it's just really a matter of okay, creating that you. diversity but you went you went to Asia were you, yeah. did you have a leadership position in Asia yeah, yeah okay yeah. so how was it different when where in Asia were you yeah I was in all over Asia but based in Singapore but you know traveling throughout traveling that part, throughout Southeast yeah. Asia yeah so how was it different there to how it is here in the UAE uh, Many differences. I think working culture is no matter what you're doing, you have to spend at least 10 hours a day <laughs> at the office or 12 hours. Like you have to show that you're that you're working hard. Like whether whether you're working or not, <laughs> that's a different <laughs> that's a different topic. Uh, but I think it, it also depends. You know, throughout Asia, different countries, different ways of doing. Indonesia was a tough company, a tough tough market to manage. Like it was like culturally. Uh, very different from 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 the rest, I would say, um, and you know, talent also very hard to find in places like like Indonesia. Uh, so usually in Southeast Asia, you have a st- very strong team based in Singapore that supports a lot, you know, local teams uh, throughout uh, throughout the region, um, and 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 it's a bit this hub hub and spoke type of type of approach. Well, I don't feel we have that in Talabat that much because I think our local teams are very strong. And uh, and uh, yes, we have regional teams that, you know, always supporting. But but the talent density in the countries here, I think is is better. It's much better. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay, let's talk about being a CEO. 
lots of people when they're young have an ambition to be a CEO or a managing director or a president or you know, don't do it <laughs> I won't ask the question you already answered it it's it's for many people an ambition but the reality is for many people when they get there it's not what they imagined it would be it could be quite lonely you know, who's who's giving you a pat on the back? Who's saying well done to you? Who's you making you feel good about the decisions that you make? Mm. What's it been like for you? Did you read the, the um, hard thing about hard things? Hard the, thing about hard things. No, no. It's a fantastic uh, book from Ben Horowitz, and uh, it speaks about like the challenges he faced, like when he started his own company. From like he went to, you know, the moon and the stars, and then he almost bankrupted for like two three times, and then at some point he managed to. IPO miraculously the company and, and make a lot of money out of it. But, you know, he, he talks about all the struggles he had as a, as a CEO. And that's a book, that's a fantastic book for anyone who wants to be a CEO. I highly recommend to, to read that book. And there's a thing that he says in that book, um, when you become a CEO for the first time, uh, you're, you're usually a, a straight A student, right? You're used to, you know, be doing very well throughout your life. And so you get to that position. But then when you start looking at the company and the results and the things you're driving, you feel this is not a straight A's result, right? And uh, you constantly look at the company and there's something broken everywhere. Like things that are not working, things are not going the way you want them to go and, and stuff like that. And when you become a good CEO is the moment that you accept that this is always gonna happen. No matter how hard you try to fix everything, um, Nothing is always going to be smooth because something else is going to come up. You fix something, something else is going to come up. And so the, the thing you have to do is like really to focus organization and doing the right things and, uh, uh, you know, hiring the best people to take care of, of the problems, right? But there's always going to be problems. So you cannot go in with the mindset of I can solve everything. So how then do you cope with stress? Um... I think I, since, since I was very young, I, n I was not a person that gets stressed very easily. And I think you have to have a bit of that. Otherwise, every single day there's an emergency. Every single day there's something coming. Regulation that changing market A that can wipe out your business tomorrow, that's always happening. <laughs> and and uh, uh, so, so I think you have to be rational and understand these things happen and do the best you can to, to fix it, right? Uh, there are things you can control and things you cannot control. The thing, you cannot let things you cannot control stress you out. It makes a lot of sense what you say. When you think about stress, it impacts everyone in their job function. You can take someone in charge of another department, they have the stresses of what goes on within their business department as well. And if they take their role really seriously, then they'll be dealing with those. <clears throat> and and maybe, maybe at interview stage, it should be one of the most important questions should be, how do you handle stress? Mm -hmm. And can you give us examples of stress? <laughs> because, because people do get stressed. Yes. They not only get stressed with the, the roles and responsibilities they have at work, then they've got the, the, the stress of what goes on at home as well, and that could be interpersonal relationships. Finance is definitely something that seems to be an issue for people, people yeah. dealing with their personal financial issues. When I, when I consider stress within a business, I find that most companies don't pay any attention to that. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the time it's because you've got this charismatic leader 
that does actually what you do. Stress is something, it's almost like part of the job. Uh, you embrace it rather than get get frightened by it or bothered by it. And so you can cope with it. Yeah. And so it isn't a big deal for you. So then the, the assumption is it's not a big deal for others. Do you have people in your organization coming to you that's super stressed about things? Yeah. And you can't understand why they're so stressed or you have to put a lot of time into helping them understand the situation differently? No, I have. I have a few. Um, and uh, I, I mean, I try and I understand them. I understand them because, uh, I mean, and, and I think the stress and the panic is a bit of, a, of a, something that sparks other reactions, right? Because if you see someone that panics for something, other people start to get anxious, right? And so you want to make sure that that doesn't happen, right? Um, so there are a few people that are in my organization that I work with, and, and, and I mean, I try to also help them and coach them on not overreacting to things, right? And, and most of the times is you hear a piece of information or you see something and, uh, and you're like, oh, it's a disaster, a catastrophe, right? But most of the times when you really dig into a topic or things and you really look at the numbers really look is this really happening is this like how uh, you know you're picturing it like you figure out that things are much better than than what you that what you think right um, and I don't remember who taught me this thing at some point that if you're stressed about something if you're very negative about something what you should do is just write down what's the worst possible scenario that can happen right and then write down what's the best possible scenario that can happen, right? And when you read those, then you realize that something that will happen is probably somewhere in the middle. It's very hard that it will be the, the worst case scenario. Um, and that middle scenario is not that bad, right? So, so that's a useful exercise for me mm. from time to time. Yeah. Really good exercise. Yeah. Do you think that people should invest and, and leaders should invest in coaching and uh, uh, or mentoring, or do you think they should find that within their organization? We do it. Uh, so for my uh, direct team, we have coaching. We have a coach, and uh, we try to meet uh, every quarter and have a coaching session, and that's very useful. It's not about, you know, uh, you know specific uh, skills but it's more kind of how do we talk better to each other like skillful skillful communication and and things like that um because as i was saying my team is very diverse mm -hmm. and and you have different personalities and people that want to drive different things and how do we embrace each other's opinions and points of view and how do we understand better each other i think that's a, a work we we do and then we do specific coaching on specific individuals if we believe there's some areas that they need to develop. But other than that, we don't do kind of a wider um, coaching um, sessions. I think coaching is more effective when it's small group or one-to-one. -one. Yeah. Do you think if one of your employees in a leadership role came to you and said, look, I, I have a coach, that, a mentor that I work with, well, coach or mentor, whatever, um, every two weeks we meet and, and I'm, I'm using him to develop myself so that I can become better as a professional and because I want to succeed in the company, will you look at that positively? Or do yeah, you, very positively. Yeah. Yeah. Why, why would I look at it negatively? Because I'm, I've experienced some people saying, why are you using an external coach? They don't understand the business. They don't understand. Uh, but usually coach is not about you know, business, right? It's more about your personal and interpersonal skills, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, how do you become a more effective leader or person? Actually, most of the coaching I did 
help me more maybe my uh, relationship with my girlfriend than uh, with the, with my team, right? And uh, so, uh, so I think it helps you become a better person overall. Dubai has grown exponentially over the last recent years. We all know this and it's you know, marketed itself really well. But there's one thing that keeps coming up over and over again and that's how people are treated, how low or blue collar workers are treated the type of relationship they have with their employer whether they're they're working on a construction site whether they're motorcycle riders and that that accusation as i always say there's no smoke without fire mm-hmm. what what do you believe of this honestly believe of this when you first came to the region did you expect there to be this type of um um, and propaganda, I would argue, to some degree, or information out there that was talking negatively about how people were treated. And have you found that yourself? And if you did, what did you do to change it? Uh, this is a very, very deep question. And um, look, I cannot talk for uh, other sectors because I, I mean, I, I just don't know enough, right? Uh, other than what I read or what every one of us of us read, right? Um, I can talk to uh, food delivery, right? And um, look, I believe that in the last two, three years, there have been like massive improvements in the um, in, in many in, on many fronts, right? Uh, but the most important one maybe is like safety, right? And safety has been something that is very dear to us. We've been focusing a lot on um, and. Uh, uh, like for example, we're the first ones to introduce like all the protective gears and uh, uh, you know uh, you know making sure that the riders were you know s- physically safe you know on the road. Uh, we recently introduced uh, telematics, right? Which is um, basically on the rider app, you will have all sort of uh, measurements of like how fast the rider is accelerating or decelerating or. How much is it bending, or like kind of measuring this, and, and coming up with a safety score at the end of the shift that says, okay, you did well, you didn't do well, etc. And ultimately, we use this data and these numbers to influence also the rider pay. Like riders, the ride drive very safe, like they get extra on their uh, on their payout, oh. right? So, um, so this is like to make sure that they stay safe at the end of the day, right? Um, Heat is another topic, right? And I think in summer it's very hot. And uh, when I did my first uh, motorbike ride, I did it in uh, I think July, right? So it was it was very very hot. Um, and uh, uh, but we started doing a lot of things like these air conditioned buses along the cities where riders can go and have a break and drink some water. Uh, cool down, etc. We have these cooling vests that you can put in the water, and then uh, they start releasing, uh, you know, uh, for ten hours a bit of water throughout the day. So oh. uh, you know they keep you, they keep you um, cool, uh, and uh, and so on and so forth, right? So uh, I think safety is the most important thing for us uh, when it comes to right of well-being, um, and then you know we'll develop things like medical insurance that. That uh, that that was added, and uh, um, and you know, flight tickets and this kind of stuff, like to make sure uh, that, that all the most important conditions are met, right? So um, I would say today we did enormous improvements um, in the riders' well-being and safety. Are we done? Not. 
we wanna we wanna continuously continuously improve. Um, but it's a very important topic to us. And I suppose one step in that direction you're taking is by going out and experiencing it yourself and seeing exactly what it's like so that you can learn how you deal with these issues. Absolutely. Absolutely. If you drive around the back of our cars, you'll see many labor camps out there and, and far afield as well. And so the worry is always what everybody is thinking about how people are treated. Now, when I was first here many years ago, people's passports were taken from them mm -hmm. and they weren't given back. And thankfully that type of stuff has changed. Mm -hmm. uh, so we just hope that continues to move in the, in the right direction. And look, we have, uh, even though we don't hire the riders directly and we hire them through 3PL companies, like uh, the riders know our management, right? They know, uh, you know, the teams that, deal with the triple companies and if there's any wrongdoing they never hesitate to reach out to us right and then we looked into it and we uh, and we fix things if they're not working uh, we for example the riders get the pay from the triple companies right but uh, we know exactly how much a rider should get based on like how many shifts they worked and so on and so forth so we do checks where we call the riders directly and we ask them how much do you get this month so we do quality checks to make sure that that happens right so we try also to a bit um i don't want to say police but you know make sure that these things are, are done in the proper way we have talabat patrollers around the cities these are uh, riders that got promoted into this position that are available to other riders on the street to help them in case they need uh, anything and also to check that they're wearing all the safety gears and equipment that they're supposed to be wearing they're essentially your front line, your brand as they go out absolutely. there. You know? They really are, aren't they? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's the most important thing. And like when I talk about the company culture, like it, of course, is it involves the riders as well. If the riders feel they're, they're, they're treated fairly and they're happy, I think they, they will provide a good impression to the, to the customers as well. And they will show they're happy to, to the customers as well. Um, I think... Uh, when we rolled out tipping, for example, that was uh, uh, very well taken by by the riders. People started tipping. People are tipping much more today than they were tipping like three years ago. And the way it's happening is because we built some specific product features mm -hmm. to kind of prompt and to show the customers the tipping uh, better, right? Uh, do so the people ask? Do they get the money? Hundred percent. 100%. So do, is it is it pulled together or is each individual? No, no, no. To the specific rider you tipped, actually they see in their wallet that they received the tip. One of the other learnings I had when I was riding was that people were tipping me, but I couldn't see it. I was sitting at the end of the trip after I delivered the food. And that's why I was not thanking the customer for the tip, right? But then we changed that and we put now riders see the tip uh, you know, Before. beforehand. So now if, if you tip a rider, a rider will know right when they come. Small difference, big outcome. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But that's what I learned on the ride as well, right? That it made no sense. But that, 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 that makes, makes sense for you as a business though, because if that rider then is enthused and he says, thank you so much for the tip to the customer, the customer then feels a sense of engagement and then they, they reorder again at another exactly. time. Exactly. Exactly. Okay, good. Like it. In the age of remote work, do you think that companies should have access to monitoring tools to track employees' productivity? And how would you balance that with employee privacy? <laughs> Which CEO will ever answer yes to this question? <laughs> <laughs> I've got Mohammed Alibar coming on next week. <laughs> no. 
No, we shouldn't. And, you know, we also have um, turnstile in the office for safety reasons, for example. And uh, I always tell Matthias, I don't want to monitor the data. I don't want to know. I don't, I don't care. Like, I don't, I don't care about FaceTime. I just care that people like to be at the office. And if they like to be at the office, you don't have to force them to, to come and do it, right? So, so no, the answer is no. <laughs> So how does your company handle controversial issues related to freedom of speech and expression, both internally amongst employees and externally uh, in the products and services you offer? Can you, can you explain controversial issues, for example? Oh, you're throwing <laughs> it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's controversial issues around uh, in terms of freedom of speech. We're dealing with one right now, aren't we? We're dealing with, with what's happening here in the Middle East with uh, Yemen and Gaza and Iran. A controversial issue is, is you know, I, I, do you remember when Jitex was on? Mm-hmm. Every I, I I'm part of an American men's networking group mm-hmm. from LA, mm-hmm. and the bunch of them were coming over for Jitex, and they contacted me for an emergency Zoom. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, what do you need? Well, guys, what do you need? Spencer, is it safe? Mm-hmm. I'm like, is what safe? They're like, is Dubai safe? Yeah. You know, Israel and and, and Palestine are at war. Is and I'm like, it's a three hour flight away. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course, it's safe. Yeah, yeah but we, we need to be sure. Yeah. And so that that's a, a controversial issue, isn't it? You know, we, we look at what's happening right now and the Arab world, um, uh, the general public are up in arms, rightfully so. But we don't see, you know, openly the leaders of Saudi Arabia and other Middle Eastern countries, you know, saying, hold on a minute, we need to get involved here. Yeah. So that would be an example of a controversial issue, I yeah. suppose, wouldn't it? No, I agree. Yes. Uh, look, it's it's a... Uh so what happened, uh, I mean, what, what we see every day is like really tragic and, and uh, um, it's, it's terrible. Uh, we are a company, like we're not a, a political institution, mm-hmm. but we, we thought like that we had to do something and that we had to stand for something, right? And uh, we uh, actually donated some money ourselves for social reliefs in uh, in Gaza, right? Uh, we we donated five hundred thousand euros uh, uh, as a company, but then we allowed also comp- uh, uh, you know we allowed customers to to make donations, right? And the amount of donations we received was uh, incredible, right? Like people donated more than two million uh, dollars uh, f- for the cause, right? So through Talabat, through Talabat, so, well, so they use the Talabat as a platform to to yeah, donate, yeah. right? Um, so I think it's very uh, important uh, issue that like a lot of people feel right now and they are trying to find ways to kind of express themselves and um, so I think what we we did I think is a bit providing a bit of a platform for um, for helping uh, however however we can right so you don't shy away from it you don't tell the, you know, the team and the business to stand back and become stay completely neutral you stand up for something you believe in. Yeah, I mean, uh, we believe in that. We 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 stood up. I agree. And uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. In a rapid, I'll, I'll come on to something a little bit probably easier. Okay. In a rapidly changing business landscape, do you believe that traditional hierarchical leadership structures are still effective? I'm no, I know the answer to this. Okay. Or is there a need for a more decentralized, flexible approach? Uh, decentralized, flexible approach. Well, how would you define that? How well, I suppose mean? traditionally it would be the, the you know the man at the top of the business that would sit in the big office 
um, that would bark his orders and instructions at everybody else. And <laughs> that, that's, that, that's how you used to watch it in the movies and stuff like okay. that, if you go back 30, 40 years. Yeah. Um, and, and then looking at it, I, I, I'm working with a company at the moment, and there's, there's, there's four guys that, that, that own the business. Mm. And they're all the CEO. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, fine, you're the CEO. <laughs> and I'm like, why are you all the CEO? It's like, well, you know, and it's actually ego. Yes, of course. Nothing else, just ego. I said, why don't you just take CEO off each of your titles? Okay, and four of you are just team members mm. or, or business owners or something. And then have specific roles for each of you to do so there's no overlap. Mm-mm-mm. Okay, and have a once a week, once a month, whatever it is meeting just to go through that, mm. okay, to make sure everyone's aligned. And that all calls the shots at the end. But this is the same. But who makes the final decision? I want to make the final decision. I want to make the final decision. And I'm like, at the end of the day, yeah. I understand where you're coming from, but you make the final decision in marketing. You make the final decision in finance. You, mm-hmm. Blah, 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 yeah, blah, blah. Yeah. Okay. You, you all own the company 25% yeah. each. Yeah. But in most businesses, that's not the case. You've got, you've got shareholders to report to. Yeah. In most businesses, whether there's an IPO or not, there's shareholders to report to. And you, in your role, I've got to make sure that well, whether you like it or not, the buck stops with you, doesn't it? Yeah. No, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, look, uh, there's also this concept of peacetime, wartime CEO. So it depends a lot on mm, like, yeah, yeah. the moment you're in, right? But I think I, I try to be a person that brings consensus when whenever we take decisions, right? But if that's not possible, I also know that I have to, you know, do it, right? And 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 take a decision uh, from time to time, right? Uh, at the end of the day, I think if you hire very brilliant people, if you hire very good people, you cannot tell them what to do every single day, right? Otherwise, they will leave. And then you can hire a, s- a person that is not as good and tell them exactly what to do every single day, and they will do it. But you cannot get the best possible talent if that's your approach. One thing we do a lot at Talabat and we spend a lot of time on is uh, OKRs. So setting the right objectives for the company. Mm-hmm. It's such a long process at Alaba that we do it uh, every half year, not quarterly, like many other companies do. But it takes us more than two months to do that. Wow. Because we have company OKRs, then we have these uh, kind of subcommittees of OKRs, then we have functional OKRs, product OKRs, country OKRs. And there's a team that works for two months and a half to just make sure all these OKRs talk to each other. And everybody is absolutely going in the same exact direction. Mm-hmm. If you have that in place, I think you don't have to bark much, <laughs> <laughs> right? Um, but I think if from the top, there is no clarity on what should be the objectives, what should be the OKRs, and like every month you change direction and you say, okay, th- we do this, then something happens and now we do that and whatever, that that makes you, like that. then you have to park, right? And well, you're inconsistent and people don't know where they stand as, as, as well exactly, when that kind exactly. of stuff happens. And, that's and I worked in companies where people were saying, oh, we keep changing direction, oh, it's not, and, and then also people start using it as an excuse mm-hmm. to not deliver, right? Uh, so I think it starts from the leadership. If you show that clarity, that you have that clarity, everybody has the clarity, and I'm not saying I'm perfect at that, but, but that's what I really uh, you know, strive for. Uh, you know, that's when things get much easier. Last question, meetings. Yeah. So team meetings, board meetings, stuff like that. Do you have any feelings around how long these types of things should last? 
a meeting lasts as long as you as a slot you put in the calendar <laughs> that's why what people say right so even if it's a 10 minute meeting if you put one hour it will last one hour right <laughs> uh, why because people prepare uh, you know presentations and documents based on the length of the of the meeting is set right um, so I think what is important is you're clear on what you want to learn on the meetings and I'm guilty sometimes of just saying I want to have a meeting on the topic, but I don't say what I want to know about the topic, right? And I think it's as a, as a leader, it's important that you that you say, okay, exactly this is what I want to learn, right? And and this is what we should focus on. And then it can be very short. It can be if it's to the point. And sometimes I tell the, uh, the, the team, don't come with 50 slides, mm-hmm. maximum three for this meeting, right? And we and we make a decision on the spot, right? Lastly, we have asked people that work for Talabat mm. about you. Mm. Really? Mm-hmm. Okay. Why did your body language <laughs> change all of a sudden? No, <laughs> you're going to call out all my bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and what you've said for the last hour is wrong. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but we... we <laughs> imagine that. And... There is there is a consensus that you're a great leader. Thank you. From the people that give me feedback. And so I want to say thank you for coming and sharing your wisdom on the show. It's really valuable to the audience listening. And uh, I wish you continued success with what you've got, which is a fantastic company and a brand that everyone really enjoys here in the UAE. Thanks so much. This is so flattering coming from you. Thank <laughs> you, Spencer. <laughs> 